Hey, everybody. I so much wish that I was back there so I give Scotty Scruggs a big hug and welcome him back to Menlo. But I'm actually in Seattle at the church that Scotty serves now. This is the church that stole Scotty Scruggs from us. But it's okay. I can't tell you how many people have told me, even Saturday afternoon I met with some of their leaders, how much they love Scotty and how grateful they are. And I just want to say to everybody at all of our campuses at Menlo, uh, when you love, pray for, invest in our pastors and staff people, you help create people that bless folks all over the place. And you have done that with Scotty. So when Scotty gives up to preach, give him a huge ovation and let him know how much he is loved by the church that will always be his church, Scotty Scruggs. Ah. Thank you. Thank you. Stop. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, let's close in prayer. That was good. That's nice. It is just a tremendous joy and honor to be here. Um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, you don't know me. My name is Scotty Scruggs. I'm a pastor at a church in the Seattle area called North Shore Community Church. But before that, I was on staff here for 12 years. I was part of this church family for about 20 years. Went to college in this area. I met my wife, Nina, here. We had our first daughter, Nora, here. Not in this building, but you know, here <laughs> in the area. Uh, so this place just goes real, real deep for us uh, in terms of just feeling so much like home. Um, I have a picture of our family just to show you kind of where we're at in life. Um, our daughter, Nora, turns two today. So literally, as soon as we pray and the service is closing, I've got to go to the airport. I apologize, I have to run out pretty quick because I got to get home to celebrate her birthday tonight so I can stay married. Um, but that's just a little picture of us by Lake Washington and... Uh, we are learning a lot as we go through life up there. Someone actually told me yesterday, you know, Scotty, you look a little bit older. Not like John Ortberg old, but older. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm growing and learning a lot, and, uh, but just God's blessings are continually kind of poured out on us, and I, as, as I know, he's doing great work here as well. But as we jump into this message, I want to start with a question that's kind of a dangerous question to ask in a church service, but I'll ask it anyway. What's the best meal you've ever had? Think about the best food experience you've ever had in your life. It could be a place that you go regularly or maybe a restaurant and maybe a place you've traveled to that was just really, really memorable. Uh, I remember a few years ago, my wife Nina and I had a chance to travel to Italy and it's a place we had never been. There's so much to see, so much history. But if we're honest, we actually went to Italy primarily for the food. Now, you know, Italian food has the four basic food groups, pasta, uh, uh, pasta, sauce, bread, and pasta. And so we just were there to eat. We ate pastries for breakfast. We had pizza for lunch, pasta for dinner. We got up in the morning and had gelato and fresh bread and cappuccinos. And we would literally carb load all day just to prepare ourselves to go to sleep at night. And we weren't doing this to be unhealthy. No, no, no. Actually, just the opposite. As some of you know, Italians on average live about three years longer than Americans, even though, uh, statistically speaking, they smoke more, they, eat, they earn less, they spend less on health care and fitness. Any guesses on why that is? If you have a, homemade, uh, a scoop of homemade Italian gelato, you'll know exactly why that is, okay? But the best meal that we ate was in Venice, Italy. And I remember almost every detail. Isn't it amazing at a great meal? You'll remember like all the little details, right? 
this little local family-run restaurant. I remember the little two-top table where we sat. I remember the candlelight atmosphere, the smell of garlic and fresh tomato coming from the kitchen. Uh, I ordered the homemade tagliatella pasta uh, with, with a fresh bolognese sauce, which is one of the great proofs of the existence of God, a fresh bolognese sauce. And when our server came out, he had this huge, tremendous, beaming smile on his face, like he was bringing us a little taste of heaven, and it was. And he said, so, who's ready to eat? Some of you are thinking, I can't believe I'm in church right now. I want to go to lunch. Like, can we get on with this? And um, there's something about sharing a meal that can be almost a spiritual experience. You know, if you think about it, other animals eat food, but human beings share meals. Because meals are about more than just food. Meals are about love. Meals are about relationship. Meals are about connection. Meals are about belonging. It's why when you have a guest to your house, you'll often offer them a meal. When you celebrate someone's birthday, you'll often celebrate around a meal. When someone gets married, there'll be a reception, which will often be built around a great meal. This is also why if there's tension or division or conflict at the dinner table, you can feel it, right? I mean, how many of you have ever been at the dinner table with someone you love that's just driving you crazy? Don't look at them. Just raise your hand. You don't want to look at them right now. It's painful, and it's awkward. But then again, great meals also have this power to bring people together. Oscar Wilde once said, after a good dinner, you can forgive anybody. Well, the truth is, takes more than just any good dinner. It takes a very particular one, a very particular kind of meal. The meal that we're talking about today and this meal that we're actually going to practice taking a little later. You guys have been in this series called Practice Not Perfect, looking at some of the practices in the Christian church. And we're looking at one of the oldest practices in the church as we know it. It's not singing worship songs. It's not praying prayers. It's not taking an offering. It's not even listening to a sermon it's a meal, a meal. But this shouldn't be surprising. If you know much about the scriptures, you'll know that throughout the scriptures, significant moments were often marked with very special meals. In the Old Testament, because of the culture of hospitality, if a guest would arrive at a home, they would always be served a meal. When a birthright was being passed from one generation to the next, that would be celebrated with a meal. When temple sacrifices were made, that would be followed by a meal. When God's people celebrated how God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, this Passover celebration, they did not celebrate just with prayer or songs, they celebrated with a meal. And it's interesting, you can find the same pattern, the same significance around meals in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, Jesus, if you read the Gospels, is always either going to a meal, at a meal, or going from a meal. You know, he's at the house of Simon the Pharisee. They're having a meal. He's at the home of Mary and Martha. They're having a meal. He invites himself over to a tax collector named Zacchaeus' house. They have a meal. And if you know these stories, you know something significant happens when you share a meal with Jesus. Not just when you hear a sermon, not just when you hear a prayer, but when you share a meal at his table. But the most significant meal that Jesus ever shared was the night before he was arrested and crucified. He gathered his followers together for what they thought would just be a traditional Passover meal together. They thought they were going to celebrate what God once did. What they didn't know, they were going to celebrate what God was about to do. And Jesus passed bread and wine. 
He spoke of his body and his blood. And then he said these remarkable words. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this. Do this practice. In fact, when Jesus gave his disciples this moment to reflect on his death and resurrection and what it would mean for their life, he did not give them a theory to ponder. He gave them a meal to share and then practice. And for the last 2,000 years, his followers have remembered, rehearsed, practiced this same meal. You might know it as communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Lots of people have talked about, debated the meaning of this meal and how Jesus is present in this meal. But what's clear is this meal is more than just a memorial or a symbol or a religious ritual. This meal is a place where grace gets real. This meal is a place where community gets real. This meal is a place where the good news of Jesus gets very, very real and tangible and experienced. In fact, if you you misunderstand the meal of Jesus, you risk missing the entire point of Jesus. Or as the old Southern saying goes, if you miss the meal, you miss everything. And something like that was actually happening in the first century church. We know this, Paul was writing letters to different churches, and his letter to the church in a city called Corinth, he talks about this one particular practice. I know you've been working through this one letter throughout this year, and so you know in this church there were a number of things going on. There were divisions. There was sexual indiscretion. People were suing each other. It was not a kind of an ideal picture of Christian community. But if you read the letter, Paul's toughest words were about how they were practicing this particular meal. Listen to what Paul has to say. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He writes this. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. That's kind of a great way to start. I have nothing as good as going to come out of my mouth next, all right? For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are these divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be some differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. But So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. When you gather together as a church, your church services are doing more harm than good. That's a pretty strong indictment of how somebody's going to church. So let's unpack this for a moment. What's really going on around this meal? Well, in that day, they didn't meet in large sanctuaries or auditoriums or conference centers as churches will often gather today. They would often meet in homes And in those homes, they would pray together, they would sing together, someone would read scripture, someone would interpret that scripture, and they would always, always, always share this meal. It would take place in a dining room, and that day it's called a triclinium. It's not something from Star Trek. It's actually the name of a particular room. And it would have these three tables, these three couches around a common table, and men would kind of recline and eat around this table. It would accommodate about a dozen men or so. And then if there were more people, 30 or 40 more could gather in the atriums outside. Now, uh, the way this would tend to work, and this is not as true in our day, or that it can be, is that where you sat at the table was a huge, huge status symbol in that day. 
Uh, some of you remember how Jesus' disciples would argue who gets to sit on his right or his left because it mattered. Some of you know when Jesus would go to dinners, he would often challenge people not to, to worry about sitting in the seats of honor at the table. Why? Because they mattered. You heard, or you've heard the saying, you are what you eat. Well, in Corinth, you are where you eat. So if you were invited to a meal in the city of Corinth, higher status guests would be invited to dine around that common table. They would recline, they would eat first, they would eat until, the, until they're full, while other guests would wait outside and often would receive leftovers or maybe nothing at all. And here's the thing, the same kind of dynamic, the same uh, cultural dynamic was at work in the first century church. The rich and respectable dining inside while the poor and less reputable were dining outside. Sure, the lower status were invited, but by the time they arrived, most of the food and the drink would be gone, and the rich or prominent who had arrived earlier would have already had their fill. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, what's the big deal? It's just dinner. I mean, it's not like the scriptures or the prayer or the music or the stuff we think of as the important stuff in church. It's just the dinner. But for Paul, this was a huge, huge deal. In fact, he goes so far to say this is a humiliation on the church. This one practice has, can risk overshadowing everything that they do, casting a shadow over all that they do, discrediting the whole community. Some of you I know are probably following the college admissions scandal going on in our day, wealthy families who are bribing college coaches and admissions counselors to get their kids into prominent schools. In fact, it's involved hundreds of people and millions of dollars of bribes, and it's so massive in scale that the U.S. Department of Education has launched an investigation, a formal investigation into some of those universities, places like Yale, Georgetown, USC, even my own alma mater, Stanford University, has connections to it. Cal Berkeley wasn't on the list. They'll let anybody in there. So it's, you know, it's a different kind of deal. I'm just kidding. It's a cheap shot. I'm just kidding. No emails, please. But think about it. What's the big deal? It's just a little money. It's a few students. Well, it's a huge deal. It's a humiliation on the education system. In fact, this practice, if left unchecked, would discredit the entire education system as we know it. Paul is saying the Corinthian church has this similar problem that's casting a shadow, that's discrediting everything else that they say and do, and it all goes back to this table and how they're allowing things like wealth and status and social and cultural norms to determine who's worthy and who isn't, who matters and who doesn't, who's on the inside and who's on the outside. In education today, there's a dynamic, or this dynamic is often called the hidden curriculum. The hidden curriculum. You know, schools will have a formal curriculum, math, science, literature, history, and so on, but every student can tell you about the hidden curriculum at their school. Who sits with who? Who's on the inside and who's on the outside? Who's cool and who's not? I can still remember my first day in middle school walking into the lunchroom and seeing the cool kids at certain tables and other kids scattered around other tables. Any guesses on where I ended up? At those other tables. You don't look so surprised by that, which is a little offensive, but that's okay. <laughs> Here's the thing. Paul is saying the church has this hidden curriculum which matches the culture's hidden curriculum. Maybe you don't see it when they sing or give sermons, but you can see it where they eat. You can see it around the table because tables kind of reveal us, don't they? Who sits at your table, who's next to you in that intimate, vulnerable space reveals so much about us. 
Now think about it in the church today, we all have an us and a them, right? Us is kind of maybe the people that are your close friends, people you naturally get along with, people who have similar values or political leanings, but everybody has a them, of those people, those people who look different, those people who live the wrong way, those people who are sexually promiscuous, those people who are way too liberal, those people who are way too conservative, those people, and everyone's got a list. And while we might not mind you know, being in the same room with those people or going to church with those people, when it comes down to who I call my friends, when it comes down to who we associate with, when it comes down to who's sitting in the middle school lunchroom of your life, who's sitting with you? Well, then we start to have our preferences, don't we? That's when the us and the them starts to really show up. To which Paul would say, shall I praise you for this? Shall I give you a high five for this? Should I tell you, way to go, church? Absolutely not. In fact, doing church this way, he says, does more harm than good. Think about that. This means your church, uh, any church, it could have the most eloquent vision statement, the most talented music team, the most you know, solid small group curriculum, the most downloaded sermon podcast, and actually do more harm than good if we do nothing to address the hidden curriculum among us. Which is why Paul goes on to say this about coming to this meal, about preparing for this table. What's it mean to prepare for this table? He says this, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup for those who come to this table without discerning the body of Christ. You want to flag that phrase? Without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. It's pretty hard words. And what Paul is saying is this meal, this table, it's not just a private moment between me and God. It's also a moment about me and you. It's about discerning the body of Christ, the community of God, and looking for what are the hidden curriculums that we have? Where's the us and them at work in our community? Where is it at work in your own heart? Where is the prejudice, the judgmentalism, the self-righteousness, the lack of love, the yes and them? Because God, by the way, it's not just out there in the world. It's also in here. And here's the reality. Here's what the church at Corinth needed to come to grips with. We can't fix it on our own. See, these habits in us run real, real deep. These preferences or the way we prejudice against others run real, real deep. And here's the thing. The left can't fix it. The right can't fix it, money can't fix it, more technology can't fix it, mere education can't fix it. I mean, you think about social media today, it's more divisive and divided than it's ever been. It seems to be just getting worse. There's conflict about how to resolve the conflict. It's just on and on and on. But here's the good news. Jesus can fix it. In fact, part of why this table matters so much, part of why Paul is so heated about this is because Jesus had done something about it. His body and blood, broken and shed, was all about a new kind of curriculum. That's why this meal is so important. Which brings us back to Paul's words, these familiar words. If you've been in a communion service before, you've heard these words of institution, they're called. Paul writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, here these words are really important, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a little ironic that this meal with his disciples was called the last supper when in truth it's actually the first supper. The first meal in a new kind of community with a different hidden curriculum. And I want to walk through three elements of this different curriculum that make this table so distinct in our world. The first is that this meal, this table, is a place where anyone is welcome. It's a place where anyone is welcome, regardless of what you've done, what you've believed, who you are in the past. In fact, in the first century Middle Eastern culture, the act of sharing a meal, when Jesus gathered with people at a table, it was a sacramental signal, a symbol of total acceptance. I mean, people today will almost eat with anyone, not in that day. If you shared a meal with someone, you were by that action welcoming them, accepting them, calling them brother or sister. And if you had an enemy and you wanted to make peace with them, you wouldn't just negotiate and shake hands, you'd have a meal. Which is why, by the way, the religious leaders were always so ticked off at Jesus for this one thing he kept doing. Anyone remember? It's when he would eat meals, share meals with tax collectors and sinners. Because it was more than just a dinner, friends. It was a sign of acceptance, of welcoming, of including, of grace. In fact, at Jesus' last supper, he offered the bread and the cup, even to Judas, this follower who'd already decided to betray him, he offers it still. Come to my table, whoever you are, whatever you've done, no matter how bad or messed up things feel or look, at this meal, grace becomes available to anyone. There's a second dynamic. This meal is also a place where nobody's perfect, and you have to admit it. This table is a place where nobody gets to pretend that they're any better than they are. See, everybody's welcome to this table, but not everybody is ready for this table. Jesus, or Judas, was offered the bread, but he refused it. He walked away. Why? Because he had a different agenda than surrendering his life to Jesus. What's your agenda when you come to this table? See, we have to look carefully at our hearts as well. Paul says, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. You don't come proclaiming your own self-sufficiency. You don't come comparing yourself favorably, favorably to those other people. You don't come pretending to be any better than you actually are. And by the way, when people walk into churches today, the temptation for all of us is to try to pretend that I'm better than I am or put on some kind of facade or make people believe that I'm doing all right. Kind of a goofy illustration of this. I heard a story about a college student who was accused of cheating on a test. And the professor called him in after class and said, I think you copied your answers from the student sitting next to you because you both got one question wrong. And the student protested, well, that could have been a coincidence. And the professor said, well, you got the same question wrong. And the student pushed back, was even more defensive. You know, that could still be a coincidence. And the professor said, yes, but the student sitting next to you wrote, I don't know the answer. And you wrote... I don't know the answer either. (laughs) See, the fact is, none of us want to admit, none of us want to come clean, none of us want to uh, talk about how we're really doing, that we're messed up and we've messed up other people's lives. You sometimes in church, we actually do harm to this. We'll say things like, well, it's okay. It's okay. 
and there's grace for you. But that's not quite right. The truth is, it's not okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. But the good news is, there's still grace for you. See, Jesus invites you to this table. He died in your place. He died for your sins, not because you're doing okay, but because you're not. And in accept, in accepting an invitation to this meal is basically coming clean and raising your hand and saying, I need help. I'm not doing okay. And because we so often do communion in kind of larger group settings like this, we can miss how personal and vulnerable this moment is meant to be. It's a meal for goodness sakes. Not too long ago, I saw a note posted on the door of a church. I snapped a picture of it because I thought it was so funny. It read this way. Confession today will be at exactly 5.30 p.m. There will be one priest available for confession today. Make your point and confess only your sins and offenses. There's no need to explain why you did it. Thank you very much. (laughs) I mean, if only it were that simple, right? Communion reminds us that forgiveness isn't transactional, it's relational, it's personal, and it goes real, real deep. You know, after Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus didn't pull him in for a quick moment of confession. What did he do? He invited him to a meal. Come, Peter, and have breakfast. And then they started talking. And then that conversation got real personal, real specific. That's how meals with Jesus work. See, you can hide in a church. You can't hide at this table. This meal is for people who are broken and who know it. And then lastly, a third dynamic, it's a meal where true community is possible, where there is no more them. Hear Paul's final words about how we should practice communion. He writes this, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. You should all eat together. See, the point isn't whether you use wine or juice or whether you pass trays or come forward. The point is we eat together at the level, level foot of the cross. You know, the haves with the have-nots and the poor next to the prominent, and black next to white next to brown, the uneducated with the educated, the older generation with the next generation, not just as people who happen to attend the same church on the weekend, but as people called together by the same host as friends sharing the same table. Because at this table, at this table, there is no them. There's only us, people deeply loved, deeply broken, all in need of grace. And here's the thing, there is no other table like this. There is no other meal like this. There is no other place for this. It's just at Jesus' table. It's just at Jesus' table. So in a moment, we're gonna share this meal together. We're gonna practice together. The table has been set. The words of institution have been read. And now it's just about what's going on in your heart. And if you feel like you're doing okay and you don't feel like you want to say anything that's going on or, you know, be willing to admit something like that, if you feel like you're not willing to eat or be next to people, whoever those people might be, this table is not really for you. There's plenty of places to eat in our world, but this table isn't it. But if you're not okay and you know it and you're willing to sit on the right or the left of somebody else who's not doing okay, If you you know you need a Savior and you know that Savior is Jesus, this 
table is for you. And here's what's really cool about this. When we practice this table, when we practice communion, we're not just remembering and looking back. We're also looking ahead. And when Jesus talked about heaven, he would often describe it using this image of what? A meal, a great feast. You see, nobody deserves this meal. Nobody earns this meal. You just come home and receive this meal. And when prodigals come home, they're not just welcomed. There's always a meal. One of my favorite books is a book called What's So Amazing About Grace by a writer named Philip Yancey. And in it, he tells this story that I think illustrates what we're practicing, what we're looking forward to, what's really going on when we come to this table, when we come to communion. So I thought I'd read part of it to you as part of our invitation to come and eat with Jesus this morning. Here's the story. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard near Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of a room after another argument. That night, she runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride. He buys her lunch. He arranges a place for her to stay. Then he gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. This good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things that men like. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse, orders room service whenever she wants. Occasionally, she thinks of folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring, she can hardly believe she grew up there. After a year, the first signs of illness begin to appear, and it amazes her how fast her boss turns mean. These days, we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She turns a couple of tricks at night, but they don't pay much, and all the money goes to support her drug habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on, a metal, on metal grates outside department stores. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl, lost in the cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty. She's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspapers she's piled atop her coat. God, why did I leave? She says to herself. She's sobbing, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she just wants to go home. She makes three phone calls, three quick connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time she says, Dad, Mom, It's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and it'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I'll just stay on the bus. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City, and during that time, she realizes all the flaws in her little plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Even if they are home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. 
Her thoughts will bounce back and forth between those worries and this speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. Can you forgive me? She says those words over and over. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. When the bus finally rolls into the station, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks, that's all we have here. 15 minutes. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonders if her parents will notice. She wonders if they're even there. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to expect, and not one of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees. There, in the concrete walls and plastic chairs bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 family members, brothers and sisters, great aunts and uncles, cousins, a grandmother, a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing ridiculous-looking party hats and blowing noisemakers, and taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her father. She looks through the tears and begins that memorized speech, Dad, I'm sorry, I know. He interrupts her, Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies, because you see, you're late for the party. There's a banquet waiting for you at your home. See, friends, this meal is just a little taste of that kind of meal. This meal is just a little bit of practice for that meal. That meal where Jesus throws parties for sinners that don't deserve it. So when we come to this table, remembering all that Jesus gave up for us, we don't just look back. We don't just examine our hearts. We do those things, but we look ahead to that one day when we, as all the prodigals that we are, come home and see Jesus with that beaming smile on his face as if he's about to offer us a little taste of heaven and says to us, so who's ready to eat? Let's pray. Jesus, we don't deserve this meal. We haven't earned this meal. And yet you still invite us to your table. Prodigal daughters, prodigal sons, more broken than we'd like to admit, in a world filled and divided by all those us-thems, we come together as one community, equally loved, but equally broken, to your great table of grace. You've been waiting for this moment for us to practice receiving your grace like that father waiting for the lost child to come home. And so in these next few moments, as we take these elements, we remember what you did. We confess all the ways that we're part of the problems of our world, all those us-thems. And then we boldly receive this amazing grace you offer, 
free to us, but at great cost to you, on that cross, your body and blood given for us, that we might be welcomed home to the greatest meal the universe has ever known, and it's yours. And you bid us come. You bid us come. And in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.